Power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, and in the studio today we have myself, Jacob, and Megan. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll just start off with an acknowledgement um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present, and that this always was, um, always will be, um, Aboriginal land. Absolutely, and we'd also like to stand in solidarity uh, with Indigenous cultures that are fighting, basically, uh, for their rights everywhere, you know, with the Tanya Day inquest, with the Jabberung um, destruction of trees. Um, it's pretty bad at the moment. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we want to stand in solidarity with them. Yeah. Let's give a quick report on the Jabberung um, um, embassy. Um, on September 11, um, on Wednesday, uh, essentially police uh, riot and workers had arrived near the protest camps um, set up by the traditional owners to protect the sacred trees. Um, basically, the workers proceeded to trim some trees and dig up soil samples as part of the sort of highways project's preliminary work. And, of course, another thing, I guess, this... Um, what, what was this... Um, going towards is that it was really aimed at testing the resolve of protesters who have vowed to put their bodies on the line to protect the landscape which is sacred to the Jabberon people. Um, so, yeah, so protesters actually mobilised um, against that, um, which I think they managed to, according to some reports I've heard from friends who are at, at the camp, they actually did manage to block and stop um, the works from continuing, um, and at this point, um, the government has still refused to engage in any kind of dialogue with the traditional mm-hmm. owners. Um, and there is an urgent court induct- induction, which might have been gotten, um, but it was supposed to be received, um, was supposed to be sought on September 12th to halt any further work. But right now, it does look like it's um, Back at the red alert stage, so highly encourage um, people to get um, to go there if they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we it's um, going to be. Um, there was also really um, a massive, pro- a good protest on on Tuesday morning um, in support of the Jabberon MC, which attracted over. You know, I think it was actually over a thousand people. So it was it was. Really good show of solidarity from the people of Melbourne, um, and you know shows there's really broad support um, for the for this uh, for this campaign. Yeah, absolutely. The more bodies they can get down there, the better. So hmm. yeah, if you can go. 
Right. Um, now, I think Megan had a story to share just about the current developments in um, Parliament. Yes. So um, in keeping basically with the nature of the government now and also the nature of the opposition, let's not pretend um, that they're any different. Um, there was a uh, the Senate has um, passed. Um, or sorry, a bill has passed. So it's basically called the Vegan Terrorists uh, Legislation. Um, it's it been passed and uh, with uh, Labor and Liberal national support. Um, now, this basically what happens is this this bill uh, enacts uh, tougher. Um, Penalties for people who go onto properties um, to expose animal cruelty uh, and and to uh, rescue um, animals that are in danger of dying. There's a lot of sick and and dying animals um, that a lot of these rescuers rescue. So basically, um, we we are, we've arrived at this situation with this legislation with these tougher rules uh, for for animal rights activists that you can now be jailed for a significant amount of time and fined way more than the perpetrator of the cruelty, uh, which is is quite insane, really. But there's also another worrying addition to this bill that has come up. Um, So what happens is, at the moment, it's a prime... The the legislation covers primary industry property. Mm. So it's industry that... Sorry, it's property that's private property or it's also property that is a public property that's been leased by a corporation that's deemed a primary industry. Now, this primary industry has now been, the definition of primary industry has been broadened to include forestry, wood chipping, um, uh, industrial sites as well now. So if you're a protester who is going on to land to protect trees from wood chipping, um, from deforestation, etc., you are now included in this bill. And you are now uh, liable for massive jail time, for massive fines and penalties that are way out of order. Um, so the, the implications for this is not just for the animal rights community. Um, it's now also for uh, anti-logging protesters as well. And this amendment... Um, you know, this was supported, by the way. So basically, Labor and Liberal Liberals put this through, um, and I believe Labor tried to get a few watered-down amendments. They didn't pass, so they threw up their hands and just voted the bill in. Um, this is absolute collusion between Labor and Liberal to get this in. It's now in, and the ramifications are really, really worrying. In fact, um, basically, from um, the discussions from um, the so-called Labor Left Caucus um, mm-hmm. and... Anthony Albanese was quoted as basically speaking really strongly in support of the of the essence of the bill, yes. um, with only Kim Carr um, speaking out against it um, during in the caucus. Um, but of course, when the caucus um, decides makes a kind of political decision, um, then all Labor people, all Labor MPs, vote in lockstep. Yeah, yeah. Well, although that said, I'm not completely against the idea of having a caucus for <laughs> MP. Oh, no, um, for, but, for, but it's more that the, this caucus is so so called. Socialist caucus um, seems to always make decisions that are always have positions adopt positions that are right um, outright right wing. So mm. yeah, there's um, um yeah, I think it's 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 pretty ridiculous. I think um, having this bill passed, it's all around this kind of mm. scare campaign against so-called vegan terrorists or 
protesters. And now anti-logging terrorists. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, there was a, there was a funny exchange. Um, I'm not sure if this is just a bit of a random tangent, but not completely random, but Nick McKim just sort of read in the media that, um, he raised this sort of funny question about, oh, well, are people who play, um, Pokemon Go going to be liable for this? Because basically when you play Pokemon Go, if anyone's played it, um, you can, if you trespass on certain agriculture areas, there would be, you might be able to find Pokemon there. So, uh, basically, yeah, there's basically that sort of an implica- a weird implication that comes out of this bill. Um, look, and the, the thing is, um, instead of, uh, introducing better animal welfare laws, introducing, you know, transparency, um, for animals in the food production system, etc., what they've done is they've cracked down on people who are trying to expose these things. And so, you know, it's it's an absolutely ridiculous situation. You have a problem here. Why don't you fix it? And again, with um, logging, you've got, uh, the, you know, re- we know that reforestation is one of the ways that we can reduce um, the carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, forests are massive carbon sinks. If we actually act now and plant um, huge amounts of forest, we could go some way to reducing the carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, and so those people who are trying to protect our forests and trying to do something for the environment and, and our natural ecosystems, again, are covered in this law and are absolutely, um, you know, hammered with this law. And these are the people who are trying to fix the problem. So I see it as, as a mechanism of business as usual where the corporations who are destroying the planet um, are favoured by the government and we crack down on the people who are trying to stop the things that are wrong. So, yeah, it's absolute insanity. I'm, I'm disgusted, but to be honest, I'm not surprised. Hmm. Yeah. Right, I might just play a quick few announcements and then we'll do um, some... Um, other quick news updates before our first interview. We're going to be interviewing a school striker from Sydney named Parker Craig. Um, yeah, so we'll be talking to her around 7.15. So we'll just play a quick announcement in the meantime and I might um, find another kind of news article to discuss. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it's 7.10am and I'm going to pass it over to Megan because um, she's got a news article to share. Yes. Um, so just in keeping with the fact that we've been um, talking about um, Indigenous rights and Indigenous issues and how basically under um, the current state and federal governments, uh, these rights have been under attack. Um, there's an article uh, in the latest Green Left Weekly by Alex Bainbridge, and it's entitled uh, Queensland Labor Strips Native Title Rights to Build a Dani Mine. Um, now, the Queensland Labor government has secretly extinguished uh, Wangan and Jagalingu native title rights over the Galilee Basin uh, in its latest attack of fawning support for Indian mining giant Adani. 
The Wangan and Jagalingu people have repeatedly refused to give consent to Adani for its proposed coal mine in the region. And the extinguishment of native title happened some time ago, but was only revealed on August the 30th. Uh, Wangan and Jagalingu representatives um, were in a meeting with state government officials when they found out that Adani had been granted and in quotes, exclusive possession, possession, freehold title over large swaths of their lands, including the area currently occupied for ceremonial purposes, end quote. According to um, an August 31st media statement, that was. So Wangan and Jagalingu cultural leader Adrian um, Baragaba said, we have been made trespassers on our own country. Our ceremonial grounds in place for um, a time of mourning for our lands as Adani begins to its destructive processes are now controlled by billionaire miner Adani. This government and mining corporations working hand in hand had already sealed the deal in secret. They are criminalising our cultural law and practices. It is now so perverse that in a threatening letter from Adani Mining to our council, denying our common law native title right to access our land, we are told we need Adani's prior consent to be on our own country. So to me this says that um, this benevolent government will, will grant native title, but whenever it comes in conflict with corporations that want to make money off that native land, then native title will be extinguished, i.e. native title is only granted at the convenience of the government and can be taken away at any time, which, in other words, that means that native title means nothing. If it can be taken away, if it's actually not giving sovereignty um, to Indigenous people over their land, then what does it mean? So... This, you know, we're sitting here fighting for, um, you know, rights uh, to the land that, that was granted by native title to Indigenous people in Queensland. And we're doing the same thing here in Victoria with Jabberwung. Uh, it's absolutely crazy. I, mm. I, don't, I, I feel like I'm living in a topsy-turvy world. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I don't necessarily have much confidence anyway that any legalistic within the current parliamentary system would be able to give any meaningful rights to Indigenous people yeah. um, because yeah. unless there's sovereignty um, acknowledged, unless, because, you know, right now most of the government still refuse to yeah. acknowledge the genocide that's taking place, evident in the fact that we seem to celebrate Australia Day every day, every year. Mm. Um, and then there's a, um, and then, and then there's the whole question of treaty. Um, that's also another thing that the government's refusing there, apart from Victoria. But I mean, but then that's a weak, a very weak well, it's, treaty, it's very especially since they're they um, cut down cutting, the trees, cutting down yeah. sacred trees. So, yeah, that's um, but it's it's not a, uh, I think, not that much of a shock that um, these native title rights keep um, being trampled on. Yeah. All right, I might just play a quick announcement and then we'll get a go on to our first interview for the program with Parker Craig. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September. 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com 
or call 0430-513-433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 7.15am and on the line we have um, a Year 10 high school activist from Sydney, Parker Cragg. Um, and so we're, because the global climate strike is actually happening next Friday, we thought we'd um, do a good um, interview with um, someone we haven't had on before uh, to talk about the upcoming global climate strike and you know, generally why um, you're joining the strike on September the 20th. Welcome, Parker. All right, hello. All right, um, so I guess to start off, can you tell me, well, maybe tell us a bit about yourself and maybe tell us a bit about the global climate strike um, that's coming up next Friday. Sure. Um, well, I am currently um, 15. I've basically been involved in climate activism since around, like, the first strike, but I think I've sort of known about it since before then. Um, But since the first school strike, I have become really involved with school strikes for climate as well as Extinction Rebellion and, of course, Green Left and Socialist Alliance. Um, I do a lot of work in my school and, of course, outside of school. Um, Generally, I like, you know, doing speeches at protests or helping organise those. And, um, yeah, in terms of the global climate strike, it's, really incredible that um, uh, just one Swedish girl, Greta Thunberg, can just start something as massive and global as this. And especially in Australia, Mm. the school strike has almost become this popular culture icon where people can almost immediately recognise it. And it's really amazing the impact we're having. Yeah, Mm. it's been fantastic. Look, um, from my perspective, um, this re-energisation of the environmental movement by young people has just been amazing. Mm, Um, I watched, uh, I I was at the um, the first strike where they had uh, a couple of kids from Castle, Maine, who've been really instrumental uh, down here in organising the school strikes. And there was a a girl, um, I can't remember her name, but I think she was about uh, 12 and she was talking about, um, you know, how basically we face extinction. And I, it got me thinking, it's your generation has basically been raised around uh, with the idea that our climate is in, in, you know, is in an absolute emergency. And you kind yeah. of, you've had that growing up. How do you think that's affected your generation sort of mentally? And how do you think that that's been part of why uh, the young, the youth have risen up and, and done this? Mm. Yeah, I think the um, climate grief is is really horrific for both my generation and so many others because it is such a really big um, idea. It is it is really massive. Mm. The fact that in the span of of my lifetime and many other people's lifetime, we could witness our world crumble around us and mm. the end of human society as we know it, and that is terrifying. And especially to younger people. Um, and a lot of mm. us don't really know how to deal with that information, of but course. there are a lot of really great tools online. And, mm. you know, it it would be really nice to sort of grow up without having to worry about sort of uh, dying or extinction very soon. It would, it, just like all the other generations have, you know, they, they got to grow up and, and live as kids. They got to live as teenagers, but we've had to grow up very quickly because 
just to sort of replace our politicians because they're not doing anything. So we have to step up and do something and we have to rise up. Yeah, thank you. And in Sydney, um, can you tell us about um, how that's been going? You know, do you, how, how big do you think the protests in Sydney are going to be in, in other parts of New South Wales? And, and um, where, like what events are, or what things are being planned? Yeah, um, I know that in Sydney, um, the reception is generally really good. We usually have a lot of people who come and a lot of people who are very dedicated and very involved and very active. Um, in terms of what we've got planned, I know that there's going to be some really good musical performances and some great speeches and from like a really wide range of ages. Um, and it's just going to be a really nice day to just sort of spend with your friends and outdoors and getting educated in, in the climate and, and listening to people talk. Yeah, fantastic. Down here in Melbourne, it looks like it's going to be huge. Um, yeah. In, in Sydney, um, have you had many sort of um, New South Wales-based unions uh, that have supported you? I know here in, uh, in Melbourne, we've had quite a number of um, Victorian uh, branches of unions supporting the, the uh, strike. Yeah, um, I know that we have had a lot of unions come out and support us. I'm pretty sure there have there've been, I can't name them off the top of my head, but there's been a lot of teachers' unions saying they'll support us. And um, as well, back on the May Day strikes, um, so a school striker did, India, make a speech there, and they loved her, and it was really amazing. Um, but, in yeah, the unions generally really, really support us, but I just, couldn't really name them off the top of my head. Hmm. No, that's great. Well, actually, maybe going on from that, um, one of the significant things um, about the global climate strike, um, okay, because I guess it started off as school strike for climate kind of start off, um, started off as this um, sort of big, massive mobilisation that was led primarily by high school students, and in fact, that is still the case. Um, but the main thing about um, the global climate strike is... Um, the idea that this is a kind of general strike, that everyone has to be part of it, no matter yeah. what back political background you are, no matter whether you're a worker or student or a high schooler. What, what, what can you tell, talk to us a bit, um, tell us a bit more about what, why do you think, why do you think that is the, po- the politics of that, of why it's really important for everyone to be part of the September 20th global climate strike? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as as I've mentioned, um, my generation as the youth, we do face extinction. But already, as people living now, as workers, people who are older than us, they will still face the effects of that. And, you know, people talk about that 11-year um, span that we've got, um, where after 11 years, we're basically facing irreversible effects of climate change. But to that lead-up of that 11 years, it's going. everything is just going to get worse. Um, mm. And those generations are going to have to face those as well as us. I mean, we're going to have we're going to be left with the aftermath, but they are still going to have to live through it, and they're still going to be affected by it. So, I really think that um, opening it up to everyone is really vital for us because it's everyone that's going to be affected, and even those people who are older, their children and their grandchildren are going to be affected. So. Climate change is such a massive issue, issue that affects so many people. I mean, it quite literally affects every single person on this earth. Mm. So it's very important that we do open it up to everybody. And it's 
it's also incredibly important that we do come and we do show our strength because, like, our politicians aren't going to act anytime soon unless mm. from massive pressure. We've seen throughout history that the only way things change in the political climate is for people to act in huge numbers, and that's what we want to do. That's so inspiring. I'm honestly so <laughs> impressed by the, the young people who are getting involved. Um, the, I think the, one of the really good speeches I heard at the last um, climate strike was from a 10-year-old. <laughs> so yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. If you had, like, imagine if you were sitting here and, and um, you know, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was on the other side of the table what do you think that you would say to him in order to try and convince him that this is real and that significant action needs to be needs to happen? Hmm. Um, I would want to know why he's not acting. I mean, I think we all do know why. Hmm. It's really money and, and coal. But it would be lovely to really pressure him about that and see what he would say on live radio. But, <laughs> you know, I would sort of love to just look him in the face and say that his children face the possibility of of extinction and that even if those children survive his grandchildren he has a family that he loves dearly i mean he never stops posting about them on his instagram Mm. like all the time but if he loves his family that much why won't he let them continue on this earth living a happy life and Mm. a sustainable life Mm. um can you tell us a bit about i guess the politics of the global climate strike in terms of what um of the um a number of the demands and um why these are kind of like important kind of demands that would sort of take the climate movement forward if if achieved yeah well the demands that we have are really important um they're like sort of just general demands that we believe can stop um or at least reduce the effects of climate change i mean obviously no no new coal or gas that is something that is incredibly important because even if we can slow it down then our government could still be doing coal mines or gas mines and so that's really important that we just get rid of those but also have a just transition for workers and that's really really important and that is also one of the demands that we recently added because we can't just sort of immediately shut down every single coal mine. We need to have things in place to help these workers and these miners through. And as well with our cooperation with unions, that will really come in handy. And as well as 100% renewables by 2030 is really important to us because that means that we have an energy source that doesn't run out and, and an energy source that doesn't hurt the environment or the earth. Fantastic. Um, it's, look, again, once again, it is so inspiring to see all of these people getting out there. Do you think that there's anything that the general community can do? Some people I know, I mean, I'm, I'm taking the day off. I'm going to be out there, um, you know, right alongside you. But um, some people, for whatever reason, might not be able to attend the strike. What sort of things can they do uh, in order to help the cause? Yeah, well, when I'm at school and people tell me that, like, oh, my parents won't let me go or I can't go because I have an exam on or something, I always tell them they can help from the sidelines. So they can be promoting on social media through Instagram, Facebook, anything else, or they can be helping putting posters up, or they can be working in their local community to have conversations, you know, like um, I think there's, like, climate talk in the pub, that sort of thing. And or going to meetings or just getting involved with people and seeing how they feel and having those discussions, as well as just raising an awareness. 
Yep, fantastic. Um, so I'm not sure how long have we got to go. Um, oh, we have, like, we have three minutes left. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, look, actually, on that note, um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you you want to talk about? Um. Well, I mean, I think you've covered pretty much everything, other than you should go. Please come. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. And this is a critical time. I mean, we talk about mm. this 11 years of, you know, before we have irreversible climate change, but um, some experts are saying we actually have less than that now. 17 we, months. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, really, if you are going to get out, if you are going to do something, now is the absolute critical time. And, you know, as, as a member of an older generation, um, I fully support the climate strike and I urge anyone who is not a high school student to get out and support the high school students because it's not only your future that you're fighting for it's our future as you mentioned and we have to fight in solidarity because it's the only way we're going to get let you know moneyed interests um you know know that this is not tolerable anymore we've got to pressure the government to do something exactly yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Parkin. Thank, Thank you so you. much for your work. Um, I, I, I have been watching this um, with fascination and I just want to give each and every person, each and every kid who's gone out and striked and, and talked about this a total hug because I love you all. <laughs> it's absolutely Thank brilliant. Thank you so much, Parker, and keep up the good work. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> And that was Parker Cragg from Sydney, uh, and um, Parker is helping to organise um, the Sydney strike, the global strike for climate that's been organised by the students. Yep. And so just to recap some of the details for that, um, if by any chance you're actually listening from another state um, that's not Victoria, um, the global climate strike is going um, ha- If you go to the School Site for Climate website, you should be able to find the details of all the rallies happening. In fact, there's actually rallies happening in even in places like Geelong, um, and yeah. Ballarat and Bendigo, I'm pretty sure. Um, although I think the the plan is actually to converge with um, with the big global climate strike in Melbourne. So that's going to be mm. at 2 p.m. at Treasury Gardens. Um, and it's going to be huge. Um, so <laughs> it's going to be probably likely. And in fact, um, there's it's even gotten as broad as. Um, Bank Australia has endorsed. <laughs> Actually, I think there's a couple of banks that are, I can't remember. I think it might be one of the big four that's also yeah, yeah. endorsed. Well, it. I think a number, of, yeah, a number of sort of big businesses have um, endorsed yeah. um, the global climate strike. I mean, that said, I mean it's still. I think it's reflective of how broad and massive mm. the movement has gotten, yeah. but I wouldn't necessarily try to. I think it's necessarily like we shouldn't give too much credit to these businesses because a lot of these businesses they're not willing to stand up when the issue is a minority issue because it, um, they will do it when it's a mass move because they, they have no... Because it's safe. They have nothing to lose. And it's good for their PR. But also a lot of, um, like a lot of insurance um, industries and a lot of banks have actually realised that climate change is going to affect their bottom dollar as well. So they have done these calculations and they have realised, hmm, we might lose money if the whole of the civilization goes downhill. Mm. So they have actually realised that this is a money-based thing. And so obviously when they make a decision like this, Mm. It's it's for their own interest, um, mm. you know. I mean, we, obviously it's an 
uneasy mm. relationship between mm. you know massive yeah. corporations and, and movements. Yeah. But, That's actually know. something we should um, consider having a bit of discussion about, actually something a bit more theoretical about the nature of capitalism and the potential of a ap- apocalyptic kind of scenario because yeah. I think you know the nature of capitalism is that you know even if the planet does burn <laughs> they could they would find yeah. somehow find a way to take advantage of it um, what's the saying what the the um the second last capitalist will sell the last capitalist the hanging rope or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, They'll find it, a way to make money. And especially, yeah, if you look at um, there's all sorts of science fiction that deals with all the post-apocalypse scenarios and how um, capitalist man- capitalism yep. manages to thrive in such an environment. Yeah. Now, I um, just want to talk about a few articles just in terms of um, the first article I want to talk about is about um, something that's written by Pip Hinman. And it's about the whole notion of the client emergency, about how, you know, we have, there's more at stake than just simply a hotter summer. Um, and catastrophic fires in New South Wales and Queensland have come early in the fire season, which usually starts in October. And of course, climate scientists and frontline firefighters agree they are the consequence of climate change. Former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner Greg Mullins told ABC Radio on September 6th the supercharged weather condition is out of control. Extreme weather conditions, less rainfall and stronger winds have stacked the odds against firefighters, he said. Um, new records are being set for the number uh, of fires, their ferocity and their destructive abilities. They are not the only records being broken. The United States... Na- um, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reported that July was the hottest on record. The next five hottest Julys were all in the previous five years. Um, while the huge fires in Greenland and the Amazon have captured most of the media attention, fires are breaking out in places no one could have predicted. Siberia, Britain, Norway, Sweden and Finland. The cool temperature hit... hit Heritage, a listed northwest coast of Tasmania, is also burning. And it's not just catastrophic wildfires that are commanding attention. So too are the devastating droughts in parts of New South Wales and Queensland. In the outback New South Wales, the drought and mismanagement of the Murray-Darling Basin has had disastrous impacts on communities. And another thing that's raised here, I guess, is New South Wales Water Minister Maline Linda Pavy confirmed last month that regional centres including Tamworth, Orange, Bathurst and Dublin could run our local support, um, local water supplies. And the Climate Council says extreme weather events are being influenced by climate change and that extreme weather events last year are part of a trend of increasing extreme weather since the 1980s, both globally and in Australia. The more climate scientists find out about climate change, the more dangerous and irrational it becomes to not act immediately to prevent a climate catastrophe. And, you know, last year, um, Australian National University and um, Professor Will Stiffen, along with six other Earth system scientists, went public with their argument that a linear view of the climate system was completely wrong because it underestimated the sorts of changes we would like, we are likely to see and experience. So, yeah, so that's, um, that's, just a bit of a kind of summary of the what we're going to see. I mean, it's not just we're not just going to have hotter summers. We'll get there's a, examples of extreme weather event, uh, events, water droughts um, that are all starting to take and have an impact as a result of human-induced climate change. And um, just in, on that note, with that event, um, firefighters in New South Wales are having to make the heartbreaking decision of which fires to actually fight because they are running out of water, um, which is just, I mean, when the fires get worse and the water is even in, you know, more scarce, 
what are we going to do? Uh, you know, the, this is a portent of things to come and we need to act now. This is pretty crazy that we've got these larger towns like Bathurst now um, in imminent uh, risk of running out of water. Yeah, scary times. Mm. And um, the next article I want to talk about is just um, actually an article I wrote that's going to be in um, next week's Green Left Weekly. Um, just about the, a bit of commentary on the growth of Extinction Rebellion in Australia or maybe focusing... Mainly this is focusing on Victoria, but I did a bit of reading to find out what's <laughs> happening in um, in other states. And um, and I think it's been quite interesting um, because I think Extinction Rebellion has sort of come as almost like this kind of moment in um, the climate movement. And there's been hundreds of local branches that have um, started to be established in Australia, or probably not hundreds, but probably in the tens at least. Um, I'm part of a... Lo- um, me and Megan are both part of a local branch in Moreland that has been organising a lot of... Um, organised a, a rally of over 400 people and has been organising consistent kind of activities. Um, the kind of a few of the things I think that are striking a chord with people with Extinction Rebellion is, I mean, there's quite a there's quite a lot. I mean, there are some political problems and some limitations, but I think mm. two of the the things that I think are exciting people is the first thing in the context of a client movement that has been typically quite. NGO kind of dominated, uh, in a sense, and in a sense that, um, to be involved in the client movement, it felt like you had to engage with, you know, charity organizations like Greenpeace, you know, um, AYCC350.org, which didn't necessarily have the complete kind of open kind of, um, democratic sort of participation Mm -hmm. structures that a movement group would have. And I mean, um, that has been, and it's, um, Extinction Rebellion has this sort of decentralised kind of nature that sort of anyone could sort of find some way of getting involved, whether it's being part of an arts group of your local, um, of the local Moreland group or being part of organising an action. Um, in fact, you know, if you just came, if you, um, Extinction Rebellion has been sort of organising induction meetings in, say, places such as Ringwood and it's, which is, and then from there, groups of people will come together yeah. to sort of, um, work towards organising a local action in the area or organising towards building towards a week of rebellion that's going to be happening from October the 7th. And I think another interesting thing I think that has also been resonating with people with Extinction Rebellion has been, I mean, this goes relates back to an article that's been shared around quite a lot in um, The Guardian. Um, I think it might have been written by George Mon- Monbot. Um, Monbot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, or it might have been something something similar to here. Um, another significant thing is one of the things about Extinction Rebellion is it does have this interesting kind of principle of kind of no shaming, kind of no blaming, and no no blaming and shaming. It's um, in a sense implying that the issues of climate change are more systematic, and so in a sense it avoids kind of the the problems of of climate movements or the environment movement that has focused so much on individual responsibility. Oh, you just have to turn off your lights off. You not you use plastic straws. Just not use plastic straws, etc. Yeah. Um, which you know, since has been one of those kind of barriers to the environment. So I think this has been quite an exciting kind of development in terms of um, the climate movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Extinction Rebellion is just one of the other many movements that has sort of propped up, and in fact, um, outside. Extinction Rebellion, we obviously we just spoke to Parker Cragg. There's a school strike for climate, um, which is drawing in um, la- um, wide layers of high school students for the first time to political activity. In fact, the whole notion of um, school strike for climate has like um, 
allowed sort of political organising to start right at the high school from just exactly. organising your classmates to um, it's a walk out of school. a generation of baby activists is so exciting. <laughs> and um, and then there's and then obviously um, there is um, the neck the other environment campaign which is more Melbourne City which is the blockade IMARC. Um, so we're kind of in this moment where you know a mass movement could um, or maybe it's already already here could develop around the climate movement and I think you know the global strike for climate is going to be happening next Friday that's going to be a good demonstration of um, the strength of the movement but then um, it's going to escalate beyond that with Extinction Rebellion is going to be part um, organizing the week rebellion which will be a week-long occupation of Carlton Gardens which will have various kind of disruptions Um, and I think I guess one of the legacies that um, Extinction Rebellion is trying to follow in Victoria is um, in Britain um, I think earlier this year they caused mass disruptions on the streets and and that put the pressure on the government um, which was um, to to put um, pass a motion to declare a client emergency now at this point they haven't really acted on that in fact um, right now the British Parliament is still it's in turmoil it's in turmoil <laughs> about whether, um, uh, what to do with Brexit and um, and I think yeah there, there's Definitely, I think, a lot of potential with this new movement, and we'll have to see, I guess, how it develops. Um, we don't, it's not really, as I kind of end my article in, it's not clear where Extinction Rebellion is going to go. I mean, it could always fizzle out, um, like other movements, um, or it could be part of something much broader and bigger um, as go on. Because I think, I mean, they are, you know, there has been, you know, some criticism of Extinction Rebellion, but I think one defence I'll like kind of to make, and without going into specific criticisms of XR, but I um, is that almost every movement starts off can start off um, flawed, like the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, you know, probably started off. Uh, I think it was just started off as a bunch of hippies, um, and then mo- bo- develop, developed into a massive um, thing with you know mass participation. And then there was the whole Students for Democratic Society was one of the um, which was the civil rights um, movement group in the United States. It's, it really started off as quite you know a reformist kind of project. It was probably would have started off as orientating towards just electing President Johnson, um, but it had evolved to doing mass dis- civil disobedience and was really part, formed a key part of the civil rights movement. So there's no, there's no, um, there's no telling what, what, where these movement groups were, despite they might start off with eccentricities and all sorts of problems politically, but they can actually evolve through the participation of ordinary people as part of it. I think, um, uh, like I, I've said this on the on the show before, but I mean, for several decades, the environment uh, movement was basically overtaken by the NGOs, and we were in this um, environmental wilderness. NGOs basically took the um, fight for the climate off the streets and out of the people's hands. And so uh, the NGOs' idea of fighting for the climate was to have these non-public talks with legislators, with um, you know people who had influence, etc., to try and change legislation uh, simply by having talks and simply by you know having educational programs etc um, I think probably we, we all realize now and I think we probably realized it then um, that that kind of uh, climate activism that was taken off the streets out of the hands of the people and put into the hands of a very few um, you know sort of basically lobbyists um, it, it, it 
it sort of slowed down the environmental progress that we could have had uh, and it really took the power out of the hands of the people. With School Strike for Climate and with Extinction Rebellion, that, that climate movement has gone back to the streets and it's gone back to public hands, which is really important. And one of the things with Extinction Rebellion is that um, it is uh, an autonomous decision-making local-based uh, structure. So what you have is you have local groups of Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, uh, Local, extinction rebellion local groups and they autonomously make decisions about the actions that they have and what they're going to do and the decisions that they're going to make. Um, there's also the idea of a people's assembly, which means you bring people in from a, bro- a broader base and you get them making decisions about things. A decision making is not top down. Although I do think we do need to talk about the criticisms of Extinction Rebellion. Um, you know, in, in one criticism that has been levelled at it uh, is uh, its relationship with the police and its attitude towards the police. Um, one of the points of Extinction Rebellion is to be, to do actions where you're fully prepared to be arrested. And sometimes the focus is perhaps more around the arrestability of someone and, and, you know, getting them arrested than perhaps the action and the end point itself. Mm. Uh, and there, there was an, um, an incident in which, uh, one of the, um, XR groups, uh, basically, uh, one, a woman was arrested in action and some uh, protesters, some XR people booed the police and they said that was wrong, we should cheer them for helping us out, we should uh, you know, be mm. supportive of them etc because they're in it with mm. us. Mm. Uh, one of the criticisms that was levelled at them was that, well firstly um, the police are an arm of uh, you know, an oppressive um, system that basically uh, is set up for the rich and the powerful. The police are not our friends. Um, this is an argument mm. that people put forward. But secondly, um, the police have been involved. I mean, we know with the Tanya Day inquest, um, the police have been involved in a lot of Indigenous deaths in custody. And so um, when we talk about... Um, you know, being friends with the police and, and you know, cheering them on and, and doing all those sorts of things, we are isolating a whole bunch of marginalised communities that have been treated appallingly by the police. Mm. And what we need is a climate movement that is inclusive. We cannot um, allow ourselves to become this exclusive group. We have to be inclusive of all types of people because all types of people, as mm. Parker said, are, you know... Yeah, yeah going yeah. back, going, make a bit of comment on, on that debate that was sort of happening, um, one of the logical justifications within the internal kind of XR philosophy is um, is this kind of principle of non-violence um, and that is, you know, we have to, we can't, we can't have basically, the implications we can't have this antagonistic kind of relationship towards the police because we need to bring in, because we're all in this together, so we need to build the biggest sort of mass movement possible uh, and part of that is by actually having good relations with the police, etc. That's a bit of a weird analysis, but that's part of the argument. Um, and I guess, I guess the thing is, um, I guess one thing is, yes, it's true that X, for, for any group that's organising actions in the name XR, yes, it's, it's, it's evident that they would have to be non-violent because that's one of its principles. Um, they have to be non-confrontational, but I think it's a completely different story. Like if there was like, say, an XR local group that was like encouraged throwing shoes at police officers, that's just one extreme example, then I guess that would be one thing to criticize, um, that 
you know, we could, you could criticize from an XR framework for, you know, not following the nonviolent principle, but it's another thing to, in response to actual police oppression, to, to boo police and to con- and to constitute that as a form of violence. Like, yeah, I think exactly. that's I, I think mean, that's a big problem. Police when they are aggressively arresting someone and using um, overt and unnecessary force, is that an aggressive thing to boo them? Mm. And I mean, I would say no. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people yeah. would. Now, the yeah. only problem is I have to hold, um, pause this conversation because we've got to get um, Paz Forgani on the line. So I'll just go play a quick announcement and then we'll go on to our second interview. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And for all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun, which way the wind blows. Good morning, listeners. It's listening to Green Left Week Radio. It's 7.48am and on the line we have Paz Forgani, who is... Um, the formerly um, the co- um, the coordinator of the anti poverty network in South Australia, but he is now currently the raise the rate campaign coordinator of the Australian Council ACOSS of Australian Council of Social Services, and he's also been a regular guest on Green Left um, Radio and Free CR. So we have him on the line today um, to talk about um, some of the. Um, stuff that has been going around um, by the right-wing politicians about drug testing um, welfare recipients. Um, so good morning, pa- Paz. Good morning, Jacob. Um, yes, can you tell us a bit about um, some of the political background? Um, some, it's, it's true that um, you know, politicians have been going on about uh, there's a push to sort of um, drug test welfare recipients. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and in fact, uh, this is not the uh, uh, this is not the first time this issue has come up. Uh, the government has tried twice uh, before in 2017 to um, to introduce drug testing for people on New Start and New Flower. And both those times, their legislation was um, defeated in the parliament, and the legislation was widely criticised. Uh, by basically anyone who works in the community and health sector, like anyone who works with people who are experiencing um, drug addiction, um, doctors, nurses, social workers, they all came out and said this is a disastrous policy. This is going to harm the people who actually need help. And uh, this is just like another way of of punishing and shaming people who are already you know, living in, in poverty and experiencing um, significant stress and struggling to find paid work. Um, so nothing has changed. That was a couple of years ago. The government is trying again um, to introduce this policy. And, of course, 
um, like ACOS are are totally opposed for the same reasons that we were opposed two years ago. Um, so, Paz, um, I, I did some research on this um, before this interview, and I could find no factual basis um, for the efficacy of drug testing um, welfare recipients uh, for either the benefit of the welfare um, recipient or even for sort of making the system more efficient um, just from a sort of a financial basis. Um, like all I can see here is some moral-based punitive um, action. What, what's the justification from the government? I mean, how are, they, how are they spinning this to try and make it look like, I don't know, it's for our good or if it's for the good of the recipients? Yeah, well, the government's justification is a pretty simple one. That, that uh, um, this policy will help them identify people who are, um, are misusing drugs, and that once those people are identified, they'll be supported to uh, um, deal with the issues they have, and then once those issues are resolved, they'll be able to find paid work. That's uh, that's essentially the the justification. Of course, if you look very closely at it, you realise there are like a number of problems. Um, I mean, fundamentally, the issue with um, drug addiction is that you know this is a medical issue, and it's about treatment and support. It's not about punishing and shaming people. It's not, and I can't believe in 2019 that we still have this this old-fashioned view that there's yeah. that. Uh, this is a matter of like morality of uh, people taking drugs. Um, I mean, the real issue is, is that there's a huge lack of services in this space, uh, and that people seeking rehab um, have to spend months and months waiting. There was a report that came out a couple of years ago that there's a massive shortage of of places in rehabilitation centres, like in the order of like a couple of hundred thousand. So, you know, we're talking about, like, helping people, um, like, who are experiencing drug addiction. We're much better off, like, putting the money into, you know, funding those services and setting up more centres, having more social workers on the ground. That would make far more sense. And you're right, this is uh, going to be a huge waste of resources. Actually, there was a drug testing um, um, program in New Zealand. They, they drug tested 90,000 people on welfare payments. And of those 90,000, only 0.5%, um, so just just half of 1%, failed the drug test. So, I mean, there's very, basically, this is, um, this is like, in, uh, like, in our view, this is not about helping people. This is about the the politics of, like, being seen to uh, to clamp down on people or on Centrelink payments. It's a pretty familiar thing uh, from this government, really. Actually, just a comment I'd like to make, and I'd like to hear your response to it, is one of the things about, one of the things that I think these right-wing politicians are obsessed with, um, and they try to sort of play fear campaigns around this, is this whole question, um, of policing, um, how poor people use their money. And in fact, you see, you see this quite often. There's, um, there's like arguments that are put forward on why you shouldn't give homeless people, um, money on the streets who are begging because you, you know, 
who knows what they'll do with the money you know they might spend the money on drugs or they might spend the money on something that they don't actually need um i mean my view is i i think we should give um if you have the means to give money to homeless people on the streets you should just give it unconditionally and not actually think about um what 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 I think the, that question is actually just wrong. Um, and then there's also, it seems that kind of logic is then extended to how welfare recipients use their money. And um, I also think that, you know, I think it's also uh, a non, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be actually, it's not actually a political argument because, you know, there's all sorts of things besides drugs that actually welfare recipients could be spending their money on um, that is not justified if, in this sort of neoliberal kind of sense. Like, for example, there could be welfare recipients spending all their welfare payments on video games. That's like one example, but the right-wing politicians aren't going on about that. They're specifically um, going for something that is already um, marginalised and stigmatised, which is um, drug use. Um, but, yeah, how... What would your sort of some of the arguments to sort of counter that those kind of arguments put forward? Because, yeah, my view is I just think that however a welfare recipient uses their money is actually just none of my business. <laughs> well, I mean, the first thing to say, I mean, being being on a welfare payment is not is not meant to be a punishment. I mean, people end up on payments because, you know, changes happen in their lives. Um, they're recurrent or, you know, they study or they get unwell and so they're unable to work or they leave the workforce um, to look after their or their parents who might be getting on. And so depending on their situation, you know, like either they end up on New Start or they end up on the carers' pension, but either way they're getting very, very little money. Um, so, so these payments are entitlements, which um, we, uh, many, many decades ago, fought long and hard for. And it's not... It's not meant to be a miserable experience. I mean, when you lose your job, you know that is, you know, that's a very, that's a very stressful thing um, for people. Like even in the best of circumstances, um, being on income support is not meant to be like a miserable like experience where you're not allowed to go out and see your family and mm-hmm. friends, where you can't do anything pleasurable, where all of your money has to be spent on the most basic needs and once you've covered your basic needs any money you have left over has to be spent on looking for work i mean that i mean i think that's the view of of many people out there and quite likely the government but i don't think it's the view that we should accept i think people on income support um should be like entitled to um to live fulfilling you know a pleasant lives uh, just like everyone else and that means like you know being able to you know go out and see their family and friends and do recreational things um, just like everyone else. So, I mean, I, I mean, there seems to be this implied view that, that you know, if you're looking for work, um, you're not allowed to have fun. And I think that's the view that we all need to um, grow out of, frankly. Mm, absolutely. I'm just looking at the practical issues of it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, do you know the specifics of this legislation? Because, uh, you know, say when you're on uh, New Start, you have a, an obligation to grow to a certain amount of um, interviews or, you know, to apply for jobs, etc., to check in. 
Um, would this be just one added, bo- like a, a burden that these people have to uh, to do? And what about people who are, you know, say caring for elderly people who can't get out of the house readily? What about people with mobility issues? How do they address this? And how frequently are these drug tests going to be carried out? Well, uh, we don't uh, we don't have all that detail just yet. I mean, we know that the government um, is looking at. Um, um, three sites, and it's the same. It's the same site um, that they were looking at back in 2017 uh, when they first um, tried to bring in drug testing. So it's Logan, uh, southeast of Brisbane, Canterbury, Bankstown, in southwest uh, um, Sydney, and Mandura, just south of Perth. Um, so those are the the um, the um, um, three sites that they're focusing on. They're, they've budgeted to drug test. 5,000 people on New Start and Youth Allowance. Uh, their, their prediction, and it's not clear how they've come up with this figure, uh, is that of those 5,000 people drug tested, 500 of them um, will fail the test. Um, I can't say how they've, like, how they've arrived at that. Um, and then of those 500, and 150, like in their view, would fail a second drug test. And the people who fail a drug test, um, like in addition to the like humiliation of like having to be drug tested in the first time, they will be um, put onto the cashless debit card, and so will have um, 80% of their payment locked up in this special card, uh, which you know, um, can only be used uh, at certain stores on certain um, products. Um, so very restricted access mm. to cash. Uh, there's where, where the detail is missing as well is like um, what sort of funding is going to uh, to extra services. The government uh, mentioned the $10 million figure the other day, but that is, I mean, honestly, that is a drop in the ocean compared to what we need. I mentioned earlier, there's, mm. you know, there's like a shortfall of like hundreds of thousands of places when it comes to rehabilitation and an anti-addiction programs. I mean, $10 million is barely going to make a dent into that. And this is um, much like cashless welfare. Uh, drug testing is very expensive. You know, this is, mm. we've got, I mean, you know, even for um, um, three very small sites, you know, it's going to cost a fair bit of money. Um, the figure I've heard is about um, $4,000 per person. I mean, that is a, that's just a huge amount yeah. of money for very little benefit, and you can—I mean, it's yes. easy to come up with other ways that money could be spent. But basically, maybe perhaps on the recipients themselves. <laughs> maybe, maybe raising their incomes yeah. so that they don't have to uh, skip meals and they can afford to see a dentist. And I yeah, think, or um, even just go, afford to, you know, travel to a job interview and, and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. This is what we've been arguing for a very, very long time, and actually. Mm. Uh, most of the community like agrees with us. We've done the polling. A majority of Australians have long supported a raise um, to New Start. And in our view, this is partly an attempt by the government um, to distract um, from that issue. They're under pressure. Um, you know, there are government politicians, you know, who've come out mm. over the last couple of months and said that you know you can't live on forty bucks a day. You know, the current rate of New Start is, yeah. you know, simply like inadequate. Um, um, most of the business community even um, um, supports a raise them to new start, recognizing, as you said, that I mean, you know, if you're so 
poor, that you can't afford to even look for work, then something's really, really going wrong. Yeah. So we see this um, partly like as a distraction. The government's under pressure on this and on some other issues as well, like the like the state of the economy. And so they're bringing out this, you know, old reheated policy that no one liked first time round. Yeah. The doctors didn't like it, the nurses didn't like it, the social workers didn't like it, basically anyone who, you know, works in this area. It's on the coal face yeah. of the issue, yeah. Yeah, that's right. They're all against it. They were last time, they are this time, and it would be great if the government actually listens to them. Hmm. Good luck with that. Yep. Um, so it's these three sites that they are, are doing the drug testing in, they're, they're trial sites, is that right? Um, that's right, that's right, hmm. yeah. Okay. And so they obviously if they deem this trial successful, then they'd want to roll it out on a wider scale, is that correct? Yeah, you yeah, know that. I'm sure that hmm. uh, that would be the uh, longer-term plan. So, in other words, they will be spending hundreds of millions of dollars to to roll this out on a on a you know on a federal basis. Um, th- that that's absolutely like it's phenomenal the amount that they might be spending just for one drug test for one person if they're doing it on a regular basis. Um, you know, so you mentioned that they've put $10 million into extra sort of um, services, etc. Is there Are there any other plans to roll out um, more money for, uh, you know, to, for drug support services at all? Uh, well, not, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I, I, mean, I know, um, like earlier this week, Becky Lambie um, said that uh, she wouldn't support drug testing uh, unless there's a massive increase um, in services in Tasmania. But like, as far as I'm aware, the, the only like announcement in this area has been that extra $10 million. And as I said, that is, I mean, I think like if we're looking yeah. at like how much more we need to actually have a, like a system where people who need support I can access it quickly and it's, you know, well-resourced um, support and where relevant it's, Mm. It's culturally appropriate um, support, and yeah, that that ten million is nowhere near enough, not even close. And, and so, let me get this straight: they want to roll out a massive and hugely expensive drug testing policy across Australia to catch the drug cheats, and then put them onto a system that is already overburdened with very long waiting, uh, for, with very long queues to wait, with inadequate services due to funding, etc. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. In fact, one of the one of the concerns the community sector has been that actually, if you don't if you don't like increase funding, then yeah, you you know, you're going to create this problem where I guess the people who fail these drug tests are they going to join the the queue and wait months and months mm. um, for support, or are they going to be jumped um, to the front of the queue? I mean, either mm. way, we have a serious problem here because we you go. Know, I mean, when people put their hand up and ask for help, you know, which is never an easy thing, no. there's a long wait, and during that long wait, you know, often, you know, things happen in people's lives. They they relapse or, you know, something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah um, it's an illness. Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. This is a medical issue. This is not a moral issue. Mm. You know, we have to look at it in terms of, like, like car minimization, in terms of recognising the extent to which, not always, but very often, um, drug abuse is a, you know, self-medicating. It's mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, trauma and stress.
stress which people have been unable to treat because they haven't been able to access mental health services. That's another area where we need a hell of a lot more funding. Um, mm. So, yeah, we have to take all of the judgments out of this issue and really look at this, I'm um, like, in a way where we recognize that that um, um, people who people who misuse these drugs are not bad people. They're not doing anything wrong. Um, they, they might they need, need support, help. but they don't yeah. need judgment. They don't need um, to be made to feel like they're, they're nothing. Yeah. Mm. Um, so just, just sort of, um, I guess we, we're sort of running out of uh, time for the interview. Can you maybe, just as, a, as an average everyday person, what can I do to help? How, how can we help to try and stop this process and what can we do? Well, certainly, I mean, I'd encourage everyone to um, uh, lobby the, uh, the crossbenchers in the uh, Senate. Um, so, um, so like in particular... Um, Jackie Lambie from um, from Tasmania, his votes are going to be critical, uh, and the the Centre Alliance and Senators Sterling Griff and Rex Patrick, um, making sure that they really, you know, stand firm and never let this legislation pass. You know, um, speak um, speak to local members as well if you can. Uh, the other thing is, I'd I'd encourage everyone to. Um, get behind the, um, the Raise the Rate campaign, which is a national campaign to raise mm. new start and youth allowance, because that's the real issue here. The issue is not people on income support using drugs. The issue is that, you know, we've got 80% of people in new start who are skipping meals because they don't have yeah. enough money. So uh, find us on our website, raisetherate.org.au. But that really is, I mean, there's no a more important issue for us in terms of our welfare System and lifting new start and new flowers. It's been over 25 years um, since they've been raised. So I'd encourage people to check out the campaign and learn more about it there on the website. Absolutely. And is there anything that we haven't covered um, just in the few minutes that we have left that you would like to maybe mention? Um, well, I, I mean, again, I think I'd just like to remind people that you know, this is an old policy and actually, you know, it's... it's um, like it's never been tried here in Australia, uh, but it's been tried in other countries. And what we know from those experiences is that you know it's incredibly expensive. You know, the drug tests are like huge numbers of people on income support, but very, very few of them, you know, actually return a positive test. Like very few of them, mm-hmm. you know, end up being found to have been um, uh, using drugs in um, New Zealand, as I said, they drug tested. 90,000 people and only 0.5% returned the positive test. Um, so actually we've seen this um, policy like in other parts of the country. Like it doesn't help people. It wastes lots and lots of money. Um, so we don't need to trial it here because it's been trialed in other parts of the country and all we need to do is look at what happened there and it's pretty clear that, yeah, we definitely don't want to go down that road, not even as a trial. No, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and um, you're doing some great work and we really appreciate you coming on to the show today. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, um, that was Paz Fulgani, um, anti-poverty activist and um, current Raise the Rate coordinator of the Australian Council of Social Services. Um, now, um, 
we've went tenton we went way past on that interview so the actress calendar is going to start a bit later i'm just going to quickly just play a quick announcement and then we'll go move on to the activist calendar six years i've been Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well online at any time. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash Beyond the Bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Okay, so now it is 8.10 or 8.11, um, so that means, well, 11 past... A rather the usual time. activist calendar. <laughs> um, we, it's time for the activist calendar. So um, what's ha- um, tonight, um, there's going to be a film screening and public meeting, Turkey threatens Rojava revolution, northern Syria's um, Kurdish-led revolution based on grassroots democracy, feminism, ecology and multiculturalism is under threat of invasion by Turkey. Screening of new democ- documentary, um, Rojava's Northern Syria, the Kurds between conflict and democracy, followed by discussion of solidarity work. So that's happening at 6.30pm for a 6.45pm start at the Blue Room, First Floor, Multicultural Hub at Little Street, and it's hosted by Australians for Kurdistan. On Saturday, there's going to be a number of rallies happening. So there's the Extinction Rebellion Princess Bridge um, block. We will block Princess Bridge for a day. This is an act of civil disobedience to disrupt business as usual and draw attention to the climate and ecological emergency we are facing. It will demonstrate to Melbourne, to Australia and to the world that we are rebelling and that this rebellion is for everyone. So that's happening at 12pm at um, the Princess Bridge block. Yeah, but check the website um Check the Extinction Rebellion Victoria Facebook page to get the link to the Action Network link so you can RSVP for it. Um, there is the Muslim Film Festival from 10am to 7pm at the Backlock Studios, um, 53 Hague Street in Southbank. There'll be a rally, Human Rights for Refugees, at 11am State Library. Um, rally Solidarity with West Papua at 1pm State Library. Um, there'll be a Culture and Film Night at Chile Coop. Um, 1973 at 6.30pm at the Shrades Hall and then there's the comedy a night Jordan Shanks um, John Howard Really Sucked 7 at 7 and 9pm at the Lithian Club 44 to 48 Errol Street in North Melbourne 
On Tuesday, there's a forum, Make Walking Safer. Moreland is Melbourne's second deadliest area for pedestrians. This community meeting will present the evidence and discuss causes solutions and possible community action. They'll be at 6.30pm at the St. Ambrose Centre Community Centre and that's hosted by the Brunswick um, Residence Network. On Wednesday, September the 8th, there'll be a court rally, Let Them Stay, Don't Deport Priya, Nades and Girls and that's at 10am, the Federal Court, 305 William Street in the city. On Thursday, September the 19th, there's Inconvenient Empathy, empathy a tribute to Eurydice. Um... And I think that's at 9.15pm at the Trades Hall from Thursday the 19th of September. And then Friday the September the 20th, there's the Global Climate Strike, three days before the UN Emergency Climate Stri- um, Summit. School students are inviting everyone to join us for our biggest ever Global Climate Strike at 2pm at the Treasury Gardens. And... Um, Next thing, I'm just skip a few things. I and on Sunday, September the 20th and um, 22nd, there's a Asylum Seeker Resources Benefit International Peace Day, a fundraising um, for the Asylum Seeker Resources Centre at 7:30 p.m. from tw- um, at the Jazz Lab, 27 Liesel Street in Brunswick. And then Tuesday, September the 24th, um, there's a public forum, Climate in Crisis: What kind of rebellion will it take? A global post. Um, protest movements starting to arise demanding urgent climate action, but what kind of rebellion will it take to save the earth from extinction? And that'll be happening at 6.30pm, um, meal from 6pm, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly and Socialist Alliance, and I'll pass it on to Megan. Okay, uh, Saturday, October the 5th, uh, there's music, Woody Guthrie, Songs of Freedom, and that's at 8pm uh, at the Athenaeum Fit Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. Uh, Monday, October the 7th, we've got the Extinction Rebellion Spring Rebellion Opening Ceremony. Meet at the base camp in Carlton Gardens at 4pm and we will march to the roadblock together and arrive at Flinders Street around 5pm. Then on Saturday, October the 12th, there's a counter rally uh, against the March for Babies. Um, So that's um, an anti-abortion rally that um, the counter rally is going to be protesting against. Uh, So that's at 12.30 at Parliament House uh, on Spring Street in the city. Um, And then also on Saturday, October the 12th, there's a music um, fundraiser for Grandmothers Against Removals gig in support of um, Grandmothers Against Removals, a grandmother-led movement fighting against the forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families. That's at 8pm at Cafe Gummo Bar, 711 High Street in Thornbury. And then on Sunday, October the 13th, uh, there's the Melbourne Marathon, Run for Refugees, Run, Walk or Push the Pram, but do it with Team ASRC, uh, that's the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, at the Melbourne Marathon for the hope of a new life. And that's it. Right. Okay. I um, might play a quick few, a quick announcement, maybe just a quick um, just an announcement about the Jabberon um, Embassy which is, um, this announcement might be just slightly out of date, but it does have just a bit of information. (laughs) We're not alone in this fight, that there are many non-Aboriginal people that are willing to stand with us to protect country, protect water. You know, these people here get it. They understand why this is so important to our people. Well, I'm expected probably to get locked up, to tell you the truth. Um, I'm ready for that. I'm ready to protect our women's space and our women's country as well, as trees and that. So, um, 
yeah, and we'll just keep coming back and doing what we have to do. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and I'm um, just going to go um, some news um, from the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, Timor Lisi, Timor. Um, Timor Leicester activists demand Australia drop um, persecution of Kalori and Witness K. Um, well-known ju- justice activist Shirley Shackleton managed to interrupt celebrations in Dili, marking the 20th anniversary of Timor Leicester's independence to hand a petition demanding Australia end its persecution of Bernard Kalori and Witness X, um, Witness K, I mean, to Australia. Foreign Minister Marissa Payne. Shackleton's husband, um, Greg, was murdered in Bubble along with um, four other journalists in 1975 and she has never given up on the quest for, in, um, for justice. The petition, called, um, the petition called on Federal Attorney General Christian Porter to use his power under Section 71 of the Juristy, Juristy Act to immediately stop the pers- prosecution of Chloe uh, and Witness K. The petition was organised by the Movement Against the Occupation of Timor Sea and has been signed by more than 40, 50 um, Timorese. So, yeah, that's just a bit of a summary of the article there. Um, and now the other thing is um, just wanted to uh, report on the waves of kind of um, basically just being what's happening in terms of the protest movement in Britain. So hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets on, on, of London on August 31st to oppose British Prime Minister uh, John, um, Boris Johnson's plan to pro, um, prorogue Parliament and force through its bre- uh, exit agenda. More national mobilisations have been planned for September 7th to 8th. Johnson's grip on the House of Commons was further loosened on September 30th when um, the opposition joined by Tory re- rules voted to take control of government business to um, bring on a motion to prevent a no-deal Brexit. The following de- um, day, Onsen's motion to call a snap election was overwhelmingly defeated. Um, opposition, um, opposition Labor MP John McDonald and grassroots voices and concerned citizens and trade unions addressed the London protests, which blocked Whitehall, um, Shrangle, um, Shrangle, Square. Trafalgar Square, yep. Trafalgar, yes. Um, Andrew, Andy Stowey, um, sums up the Lum- London protest in Um, Andy, um, sorry, sums up the London um, protests in social resistance like this. Uh, the London event was dominated by pro-Remain, um, pro-Corbyn supporters. This felt like the day that Labour put, um, both put itself at the heart, head of the, of the anti-Brexit movement on the streets and energised its supporters for, um, what will be a ferocious, um, general election campaign. So yeah, that's just some of the the, um, the examples of kind of resistance that um, that's been happening in um, in um, Britain, uh, especially in response to the whole farcical uh, thing that's um, happening with kind of Parliament right now. Ah, uh, Boris Johnson, that shambling wreck of elitism. <laughs> Honestly, it's just amazing. Um, he thinks he could still get through the no-deal Brexit, um, even though I don't know how it is possible legally. So, yeah. Mm. And, um, yeah, and, and I think there's, um, there's just been, I guess, a bit of a political debate on when the uh, election um, will um, get, when the election's going to be. And, in fact, mm. there is some characterisation by the right-wing press that um, Corbyn is trying to delay a general election despite arguing for it. And I don't, mm. I, I think he, I don't, I don't think actually that's really 
what's necessarily happening because actually the way um, Boris Johnson is trying to push through the general election as it is was on his own terms mm. in a sense that would benefit him the most in a sense that he implements <laughs> the no-deal Brexit and basically puts anyone who could take power in probably the worst position possible. I, I don't understand why they would think Corbyn would want to delay um, the election, though, because <laughs> Boris Johnson is a total Corbyn advertisement. Why Why would you want to delay when you've got this whole you know, circus happening at the moment? Yeah, mm. definitely in his favour. Yeah. All right, now I've just got to play... I'll just play a quick announcement, and, um, yeah, I've just got to go find something here. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Hey! 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 Hey!
Right, you're listening to Green Left um, Weekly um, Radio. Um, it's 8:25 a.m. Now, I just want to do a quick kind of article, um, sort of discussion a bit about um, the whole issue of sort of some of the recent news articles that have been around anti-Chinese kind of racism. Um, and in fact, um, there was a a weird development that happened in the Caulfield campus of Monash where they basically, um, the, the, um, student union basically made it, um, so that, um, no one could be, um, could stand for elections in Monash unless, um, that they could, unless they were, um, they, they were, well, basically anyone who got elected in the, the office bearer positions are usually like 20 hour sort of positions and so they made it so the office bearer positions are 22 hours which excluded every single international student because international student legally can't work more than 20 hours oh is that a, so that was a deliberate tactic to yeah so a deliberate tactic to, students to be, um they, so yeah i think that's just sort of in light of sort of all this sort of phobia around you know mm. the chinese etc i think this is just sort of a latest kind of example of kind of anti-chinese racism and then there's also been this also weird discussion about um the liberal mp gladdy Gladys Liu. Gladys Liu. I mean, she is a terrible person politically, <laughs> but I think that, you know, this whole sort of scare campaign around her mm. being a, you know, Chinese spy, etc., I think is just essentially dog whistling. Um, and it's all revolve, and it all revolves around this sort of flawed conception of foreign interference. Now, it's possibly true that China is uh, committing some kind of foreign interference, you know, to increase its influence in Australia, etc., mm. but that's I don't see how that's any worse or any more evil than the amount of influence that the United States has over our Australian political system. Mm. Uh, in fact, the um, most of our politicians actually just welcome any kind of US influence, but somehow Chinese influence and interference is not okay. It's like the I think, other, they're different from us, whereas the US are apparently you know the same to us. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's just I think it's more of example of, you know brushing up drumming up kind of racism etc. Now I just that's I just sort of off on that note um, thank all our listeners for tuning in this week have a great um, weekend and yeah everyone. tune in next week for Green Left Radio oh yes and stick around um, we now have Beyond Zero so they have um, all of the latest environmental news this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. to start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Oh!